Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO of Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management, law firm leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Dan Siegel. Dan is an attorney from the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, Dan is a nationally recognized authority on legal ethics, technology, cybersecurity, technoethics, data protection, and business law office practice and workflow management. Dan also provides technoethics and professional responsibility counsel to solo, small, and mid-sized law firms on cybersecurity, technology, and other related issues. I asked Dan to participate on this episode to talk about technology developments remote practice, and the effect that these changes have had on the ethical roles, or maybe better said, how the ethical roles should be reconsidered in light of technological developments. Dan is an advocate for substantially revising the ethical roles, and so am I, to reflect the current practice of law. Dan has previously joined me for episodes on productivity as well as security. Thanks for joining me again today, Dan. Thanks, and I'm glad to be here. Welcome, everyone. So, Dan, you have written and spoken on the need for the professional ethical roles of the legal profession 
to be updated in a way that reflects the ways that technology and related forces have impacted the practice of law. I know that's sort of a big ask to say, can you talk about that generally, but where would you start on that? Well, it's actually kind of easy. Uh, the model rules of professional conduct, the rules that, lawyer, that every state's ethics rules are based on, were created in 1983. The word technology, for example, does not appear in those rules. I started practicing in 1984 and didn't own a computer until 1986, um, which was the same time when the Commodore 64 came out and lots of people were still using IBM typewriters. Back then, the practice of law was physically based where your office was. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a technological world where you can be anywhere and representing the clients in the states where you're licensed without a problem. But the rules haven't adapted for that. It really came to a head in a lot of ways during the pandemic. But this has been an evolving problem because technology is everywhere um, and the rules have not changed in a way that recognizes those changes. Let's say that somebody came to you and said, Dan, we're going to let you change one, but only one of the model rules and nothing else. And so you had to pick. And I get that there's a lot of need, but what do you think would be the most important area to change? Ignoring definitions, which to me don't really do a lot. I would be changing rule 1.4 on communication probably because the nature of communication has changed so much. You know, when we started practicing, we were talking about inadvertent faxes that were being sent. Now you have e-discovery with improper redaction or privilege locks. The world has changed and all of those types of communication and that information is so different, yet the rules try to fit everything into the old standards. And it's really hard at times. We make it work or as well as we can, but the rules can change. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40 plus years now or roughly 40 years since they came out. That's a long time. So what should mostly change just that they should be adapted to consider all forms of communication? Should different forms have different rules? Well, I think you have to recognize there are different forms of communication, different issues. You have to recognize that those forms of communication um, form the basis of a lot of our practices. Virtual offices didn't exist. There was no internet or cloud. So communication in those instances is different. Um, and how and how we communicate is different. And where we communicate from, whether it's a phone, a smartphone or something, but the whole, you know, no one talked, there was no such thing as email. There was no such thing as the cloud. There were no client portals. There was no internet. Uh, I had, you know, those, those modems that went in law school. Uh, and the way we, everything we do is with communication. So if you don't fix the rules on communication as a start, you don't go while recognizing the other issues, which is we're no longer in a physical based world legally. 
And the starting point with the model rules, and the model rules, again, are the ABA model rules, which by themselves only have force of law if they're adopted by a state. And each of the states has mm-hmm. adopted something, but each one of them changes it based on whatever they deem important, right? But so the model rules are kind of a guide. But if you look at Rule 1.1, that's the rule on competence, which is pretty fundamental in the legal profession, is that you must be competent. And competence was expanded at some point to include must be competent in technology, but that's only in a comment. And I believe that's the only real place in the model rules that technology has been incorporated And states have incorporated either by adopting that comment or various other steps. But is that something that technology itself and lawyer competence should be evolved? I think it's a huge issue. Um, First of all, the comments are not rules. So you can't be disciplined for violating a comment, only a rule. So there is no rule with technology, um, which has been, you know, there's one commentator in Philadelphia who writes all the time, and he would like to live in a world, you know, where there he can go back to without technology and thinks that's a way to do it. But technology and competence, and that, and that, by the way, that comment with technology is, as of January of this year, was only adopted by 40 states. So not everyone has even adopted that. But techno- competence in technology is competence in everything that lawyers do nowadays to be able to provide client services, whether it's, you know, at the basics of protecting wherever you're storing your data, a server, a computer, et cetera. Uh, If you're not protecting the data, you're not being competent. Um, If you are someone who, you know, in, in your practice area, there's all these different advanced forms of software to help you analyze what can happen uh, with, you know, certain wealthy clients and where they live and all of those types of things that are way out of my uh, expertise. So you have those. Um, But is it competent as an attorney if you don't know that those tools exist for you or use them? If you try a case and you're using old physical diagrams versus an electronic recreation, which is being competent. If you're sending email uh, and it's not protected, is that competent? Uh, Those are the problems all because of the word competent. And in Pennsylvania, we amended our comment to say that competence includes complying with our public access policy, which deals with redaction of documents that are filed. Well, I can tell you chapter and verse about all the lawyers who regularly don't comply properly with that policy. Uh, But no one gets in trouble for it. And I see filings that have information that should be protected and others that people protect. They don't even know how to read the rules, let alone know how to do a redaction. So it's a real problem. You've taken answer. Sorry. You know, it's a long answer, but it actually got me thinking. There's a proposed. I I serve on the legislative committee here in our state, and one of the firms came forward because in our area there's these inheritance tax filings and probate filings you have to make, where you do have to attach inventories of everybody's assets, and that's public record. I can pull up any probate that has a filing. So there's actually a movement to 
it sounds like that's what you've done in Pennsylvania, that we're going to redact some of that information. And one, having it required, and two, actually getting it done are kind of two different issues. Yeah, and our rule evolved in ways that I just wrote a column for uh, what's called the legal intelligencer in Philadelphia, criticizing that the way the courts evolved, the rule has made it worse. Uh, But it's states have you know, have been working to deal with this. I mean, Pennsylvania's policy is modeled significantly after Minnesota's, uh, which is a very good state in terms of what they did. There's certain information that should not be out there for what we referred to. And I was on the committee that originally created the policy in Pennsylvania, what we called the nosy neighbor. Um, it's They shouldn't be able to look at a filing and see your tax returns um, or see, you know, your child's medical information. And that was regularly available here because we had no rules. You know, so as long as you could access the court files, which many were online, you could see all that stuff, including in family law matters. Um, The stuff we saw was, you know, no parent would ever want that out there, but it was there because it was public record. And once upon a time, it really was the nosy neighbor who had to go to the courthouse and go through paper files. And we've certainly had incidents where that did occur, but now it's just hop online and it's fairly easy Mm -hmm. to dig in. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. At Foster Group, our team is different one whose focus is on you and your dreams. Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there, wherever there is for you. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. And so speaking of the paper, you've taken the position that being paperless should be an ethical requirement. Can you tell us why and which rule would that change and how? Well, to me, you can't in this day, the pandemic made one thing clear. You can't count on being in a physical office all the time. If you can't access your information, you can't provide representation to a client in a full, complete, and competent manner. So my view is all file, a lawyer who does not digitize, in other words, scan or make electronic, all client information or uh, isn't being ethically competent because if I can't get to it, uh, I can't use it. And ironically, the pandemic hit and we suddenly, you know, you find out today your office is closed. So in our office, we went, okay, we'll work from home. We weren't concerned. And I had to do a, prepare a brief for a client. And there was one piece of information that I had been handwriting on my desk notes. It was all kinds of numbers to try to come up with the data. But before I left that day, I didn't scan it. So guess what? I go to write the brief and what's the one piece of paper I needed all my notes. It wasn't there. Um, And that can happen again and again. But if you digitize everything, it's there. And if it's properly backed up, if your office burns down, so what? Um, Anything happens, 
it's somewhere stored. But if you don't, you're not protecting your client's interests and your ability to practice. So I just say everything must be digitized in order to be competent. And it's in everything, correct? It's Because if you well, leave that one piece of paper out, mm-hmm. and let's say that it gotten destroyed somehow, then all of a sudden there's that compromises yeah. your ability to serve competently. Yeah. Thankfully, so, I'm a mile from my office. I drove in. And, you know, right? And it was still there. But that's other mm-hmm. things could have happened. So I, Yeah, I regularly tell people, I'm work, I'm sitting here in a old house um, with 100 amp electric wiring that I rent. This building could burn down. I hope it doesn't. But if it does, all of my data, including every piece of financial records, is stored on site and off site. Um, plus, we have a backup drive on site that resists fire, flood, and you know, God knows what else. Um, so, yeah, I'd be upset that the office is gone, but all I have to do is access my backup, and I'm back on. I'm working again, and you know, get a new server. But that's not so bad. Imagine when you don't have it. And we had a catastrophic fire in Philly many years ago, where an entire office building burned down, and no one was ever able to get into their offices and that was before all the technology and the lawyers still talk about how hard it was to recreate their files and that was the days of you know paper files right and so today that's something that kind of should just happen i think there's a missouri opinion that talked about where somebody lost paper files in a fire and didn't even have a record of them and Mm -hmm. basically the opinion said yeah call your malpractice carrier yeah Well, let's talk about model rule 1.6, which is on confidentiality of information. We've touched on that a little. In another episode, you mentioned Pennsylvania's rule about confidentiality. I don't remember quite how you couched it, but it was pretty strict in terms of what you can say. And I was sharing, I was at a recent conference where somebody was on a phone and I was in the restroom and they're in the stall. And I'm thinking, why is it that people think that they have confidentiality where in their, in the restroom? And that's the really obvious, but the big one that's been a subject of several opinions that I've seen is the use of social media. So can you speak to that a little bit? And is that something that should be covered more specifically in the rules? Well, yeah, I mean, social media is, you know, to some, it's the wild, wild west. Um, but confidentiality in Pennsylvania means the, the information that you must keep confidential is information relating to the client. That's a very broad definition. Um, and I, I was talking with our law clerk and like New York's definition of confidentiality, little different. And every state adopts a slightly different definition. But when you get to the world of social media, lawyers like to brag about clients and their, you know, their successes and everything. And you have to be very careful what you do say or don't say online, whether you can, if you have client permission, um, there's a whole different world about responding to negative reviews, which you really can't say much other than I may disagree or I'm sorry, you're unhappy or whatever. But if you go beyond it, you can be disciplined. There's lots of lawyers who've been in trouble all over the country for those types of things. Um, But social media, you have to be very careful about that and communications and intakes and all of those things, because who is actually seeing it? 
Um, you know, when you use for firms who use Google for um, they have this uh, local service ads, which have become very popular, but you need to be aware and they tell you and they, they channel the calls. By the way, this call is being monitored by Google and there is no attorney client privilege, but at least they tell you that um, other services may not be that clear. So if we were going to revise the rules and make a rule about like, say, social media, because I know what I was taught was to never share anything that could lead to the identity of or allow somebody. And so, you know, I was saw a social media post by a lawyer recently where they mentioned their hearing in a court today and they didn't mention the client's name and they didn't actually mention it. But I was thinking, well, I could actually go see in the court docket what case mm-hmm. this guy was talking about. And so I had an issue with the fact that I'm not sh- clear that generically talking about being in court that day is really in line with confidentiality. What do you think about that? Well, it's it depends on the nature of the proceeding, too. If it's something that's supposed to be kept confidential and it can be found, that's a problem. If I say I'm in court tomorrow or next week where I'm, I'm in the Pennsylvania appellate courts, three or four times, uh, depending on how they fix my schedule, shall we say, um, you'll be able to see my cases are there and you'll be able to see the dockets about those cases. You will not be able to see any of the filings because they're kept private or limited access. But I can't talk about anything that's beyond what's public. Um, And lawyers want to do that, especially when they either get a good result or there's an issue and they want to explain, well, this is why things didn't go well. Um, So you need to be very careful. I I like to err on the side of conservatism. We don't talk about specific clients online, Um, but I see other firms that go the other way completely. And if you don't have client consent uh, to do that, uh, you are risking, you know, disciplinary issues the client consent is a little bit of a game changer there right if the client says yeah "Yeah, we want you to share and that's usually results of a lawsuit part of sometimes which is public record sometimes not but certainly would never apply to me estate planning i wouldn't even ask a client can i share the details of your estate plan on social media yeah no i don't think i would do that but this is what i did for this uh you know wealthy client no and here's the client no, uh, that you can't do. I mean, litigation creates a lot of issues because lawyers try to put some try to push to the edge. Um, and when they go past it, it could be an issue. Um, and, you know, I read articles and sometimes I wonder about the quotes and you can see the other lawyers who, you know, there's a nice way to brag about your multi-million dollar verdict while maintaining the ethical rules. But the rules didn't contemplate social media. They didn't contemplate even sort of any types of sort of online and blogging and Twitter and all of that. And it creates a lot of issues. You know, we had a major criminal trial where one of the jurors was tweeting, oh, tomorrow there's going to be a big announcement in the courtroom. Well, you can imagine what that caused um, in that case and what the judge had to do to address it. Those things happen. And that's not the lawyers. That's That was the juror. And that's, again, where these rules were written before a lot mm-hmm. of social media even existed. Yeah. 
Well, let's shift and talk about one of the hot topics currently, which is the unlicensed practice of law in Rule 5.5. And I had a interesting conversation recently at a committee meeting where we have this underlying rule of competence. And I was thinking to my, myself as somebody who's done tax, trust, and estate work and certain other work, but for 30 years. And so I'm pretty knowledgeable about trust and estates. And our rules on the unlicensed practice are based on geography, or I've heard it referred to as the Heine rule, and not so much on substantive area. So in my home state, If somebody called me and said, you know, Mary, I want you to take on this personal injury case. Technically, as long as I were willing to maybe affiliate with somebody else who was knowledgeable in the area or to learn enough to effectively handle the case, I could take on that personal injury case in Nebraska. But yet I couldn't go over to my neighboring state of Iowa and set up an office and practice and handle Iowa trust and estates. But if I really look at competence it'd probably be easier for me to learn, and actually I'm fairly familiar with the Iowa rules, so that might have been a bad example, but that it would be easier for me to learn the trust and estate rules specific to a state than to learn the personal injury rules in Nebraska. And there's a lot of conversation about that going on right now, but one of the issues has been, hey, as a remote worker, I work for a New York City law firm, pandemic hit, I've gone, I'm practicing law up in Connecticut where I'm not licensed, but I'm still working for a New York law firm, same clients that I was working for in the office, but I'm now residing in Connecticut and practicing here. So what are your thoughts on those rules and what ought to happen? Well, you raised sort of two issues. One is whether there should be a national practice of law, which some people want, I don't think is going to happen in my lifetime or that of, you know, if I have grandchildren. Um, The bigger issue though, that the pandemic brought out is um, the problem of geography-based rules, which is theoretically, I'm a Pennsylvania lawyer, practically, I'm a Pennsylvania lawyer. I could go to Nebraska where you are and represent my clients and handle their matters in Pennsylvania. The fact that I'm sitting in Nebraska doesn't matter or change my ability, but I might be considered, and I don't know the Nebraska rules, but let's assume that they're like most rules. You can only practice law in that state if you're licensed, that I'm practicing the unauthorized practice of law because I'm practicing law physically in the state, even though I'm practicing Pennsylvania law. What lots of states have done in in the wake of the pandemic because, okay, you can't go to your office. In Pennsylvania, lots, and certainly Philadelphia area, lots of people have homes on the New Jersey shore. So they went down there. But if they're not a Pennsylvania, if they're not a New Jersey licensed lawyer, they were practicing the unauthorized practice of law technically in New Jersey. Now, no one's been, that I know of, has been disciplined for it. But what all the states have done, and we issued a guidance opinion in Pennsylvania, um, the ABA issued, and lots of states did, is to say, well, in that circumstance, it's okay. Well, that's totally inconsistent intellectually with what the rules are. And that's because the rules are geographic. Um, A lawyer licensed in Pennsylvania should theoretically be allowed to represent his or her clients, no matter where he or she is sitting. But that requires those other states to agree. And some states are more receptive to those concepts than others. Uh, Some states, 
I think Ohio and North Carolina have already changed their rules to address that for their licensed attorneys. But that still doesn't change if I'm sitting in another state and do something that that state considers wrong. It's a mess. I agree that it's a mess having recently tried to review the, and I also agree that it's probably not going to change anytime soon because we've left that to each state to adopt those rules. Mm -hmm. But the arguments I've heard about it is that we're doing a huge disservice to clients in an era where we're supposed to be worrying Mm -hmm. about access to clients who are underserved. And one of the examples was say an expert who is, you know, say somebody in Minnesota who becomes an expert in certain transactional issues and might know more about the issues that they're dealing with than some of the lawyers like to go practice. She's in Minnesota. She can bring somebody in who's in Kansas who is actively involved, but that's going to add expense for the client. And the attorney in Minnesota might actually know more than the person in Kansas but yet there's all of these restrictions and rules about how that happens. And then you get gray areas because we do cybersecurity guidance and, and things like that. And best practices in cybersecurity don't change because you're in Nebraska or I'm in Pennsylvania. Um, but yet in theory, if I'm, you know, addressing, you know, it's also a legal and ethical concern. Am I giving you uh, legal advice that's in, that that's uh, in violation of the rules. You could get someone who strictly interprets it, and some states do. You know, we we have a couple of adjacent states to where I am that can be very strict on those issues, um, and it can cause and has in some areas a lot of issues. Um, and I was talking to somebody earlier today on Pennsylvania. It says if you're in Philadelphia and you're doing something like employment law you're going to be representing employers in New Jersey. So you basically have to go get licensed in both states. Yeah. And, so- and, and you know, and we can have the bigger problem. And, and in, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area lawyers would know this, that you can, we have separate rules of procedure, local rules for every county in our state. So I'm in Delaware County. We have our own rules. Around me are also Montgomery, Bucks, Chester, plus Philadelphia. Well, if you are not in one of those adjacent counties, strictly has its own set of local rules and specific procedures, how you have to file a motion and what words need to be in certain things that aren't in the state rules that apply to everyone. You miss one word, they they will reject your filings. So we get you know, you talk about being hometown, you, you, you get bounced more procedurally in an adjacent county than you might in another state. And it creates problems. Uniformity eliminates that. You know, if we had uniform rules um, of ethics for everyone, uniform rules of licensure, it would make life a lot easier. It would, but it would also make some jurisdictions that are a little, that are protective of their licensure ability concerned. And I think that's the driving force that keeps us from being uniform. Well, do you have any last thoughts on this topic before we end today, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's tough because um, we live in a world where we are virtual. You know, the Zoom world didn't sort of exist until the pandemic in any real sense, but it's how we're able to do things. 
um, yet we still have the protections and concerns. You know, the ABA has proposed and some states have adopted some provisions to expand services with experimental or, um, they, you know, they call them the sandbox programs, but yet um, other states are completely resistant. And is it benefiting the client? And it's what you said earlier. You know, what we should be thinking about is what's the best way to represent our clients and the rules don't, right now don't always achieve that goal. And I think that should be a driving force behind the change that we really put clients first. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts today, thank Dan. You. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.